0: And so I've got three points that I want to bring forth for you guys from uh, Genesis 38. My first point is the wayward brother. My second point is the immoral brother. And my third point is the humiliated brother. And so let's get into it. We're going to be reading from verse 1. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her and she conceived and bore a son and she called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son and she called his name Onan. Yet again, she bore a son and called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kezib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her. And raise up offspring for your brother. But Ona knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife he would waste the semen on the ground, so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter in law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Well, in the book of Genesis, we often find the story follows sort of two individuals, and they're usually brothers when we, we do come across them. Uh, first, we saw Cain and Abel. We remember that, those, that pair of brothers and what happened there. We saw Abraham and Lot, Ishmael and Isaac, Jacob and Esau. And now we have moved on from Jacob and Esau, and we have the next pair of brothers that we're going to be focusing on, Joseph and Judah, two brothers that couldn't be any more uh, unlike, unlike each other. Uh, when we last saw Joseph, we watched as he was carted off to Egypt as a slave, sold by no other than his brother Judah, his older brother that should have cared for him. And this story awkwardly interrupts the story of Joseph. It awkwardly comes along and interrupts the flow of those stories. Some scholars even go as far to say that someone added this story in much later. Well, what these esteemed scholars seem to miss is really the basic framework of Genesis. That Genesis always follows two characters, almost always, in every uh, aspect. And Moses is very deliberate in inserting this story of Judah here, in this moment, at this spot. There is a purpose for it. Now, Judah has earned a decent amount of coin for selling Joseph as a slave. He sold him for 20 shekels of silver, and we know that uh, a shepherd can hope in a year to earn eight shekels of silver. This is a pretty sub, like, uh, substantial sum that he got from Joseph. And so he leaves with his newfound riches and turns aside to a certain Adullamite, whose name was Hira. Interesting phrase there, turned aside. It seems that Judah has a new best friend. And it's Hira, an Adullamite, a Canaanite. And remember, we all shudder when we hear the words Canaanite because the Canaanites were notoriously wicked. The Canaanites were the ones that uh, polluted the land. And this friend Hira had tremendous influence over Judah. Judah deferred to Hira. Judah listened to his advice and they both got up to mischief together. Hira was not a good influence on Judah and Judah loved that. This isn't good. Judah should know not to associate with Canaanites, and yet here he is. The Canaanites whose religious practices were so grotesque that God wanted his people to have nothing to do with them. And here's Judah's next best friend, Hira. He doesn't get the memo. He decides to ignore it. And the whole story begins with Judah finding a new friend, and it really highlights the fact that our friendships often influence us a lot more than we would kind of care to admit. Now Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, do not be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. When we're having fun, we often overlook the flaws and bad influences of our friendship circles. And Before Judah was even aware, he had started to become a Canaanite himself. Uh, one, of the, one of the interesting things of uh, having a wife that's pregnant is she often joins these mum's groups. And these mums groups have a lot of great advice um, but sometimes we like to go in there and just like watch all these women complain about absolutely everything in their life and we have a good laugh about it. And one of the things they complain about that shows up maybe 80% of the time is uh, the husbands or the partners and what they're not doing and what they need to do better and all this kind of stuff. And what you'll find in the comments is as these women, these bitter women get together and have all these grievances, they compound upon one another. And it ends up bringing more and more and more sin out of each of those women as they love jumping on and gossiping about their situations. And often our friendship circles, which give us a bit of joy out of because we get to go in and do all the stuff that we like to do, but often it brings uh, sometimes our worst traits out of us. And so we need to be careful that our friendships are not with pagan Canaanites, but with those who love and trust God. Judah has made a bad mistake and This first bad mistake is going to lead Judah down a horrific path. If you think that this passage, this short section we've already read is bad, just wait until you hear the end of it. The first thing that usually happens when you get too far into a friendship group is romantic interest, and Judah starts checking out the Canaanite girls. And any Hebrew immediately would have a red flag kind of raised up right now. Alarm bells will be going off. Don't marry Canaanites, a big no-no to the Hebrews. We saw what happened to Esau, how much that kind of ruined his life. And Judah doesn't even care. And any Hebrew would have been shocked because where is Jacob? Where is Jacob? Judah is getting married and where is Jacob? Where is Leah? Where are his parents? Where are his his family? Where are his brothers? Judah goes and gets married in the dark. It's likely that Probably no one in his family even knew that he got married. This is how much Judah had basically abandoned his family. As soon as he found a new friend, he left his brothers, and now he was getting married, and his family had no knowledge. The Canaanites were his new family. So he has three sons with Shua's daughter. We've got Ur, Onan, and Shelah. After two boys, you could tell they really wanted a girl. Obviously, Sheila, the, <laughs> the one just went straight over the head. Uh, but all jokes aside, uh, these three sons, they're raised like Canaanites. How do we know that? Well, we know that by their fruit. Er is so wicked, the Bible tells us here, that God puts him to death. Now, I want you to know that this is a rare occurrence with Scripture where God just specifically puts someone to death for their wickedness, and it is the first time... That God has ever done this in the whole book of Genesis so far. Uh, he, he did obviously destroy the world in the flood, but this is the first time that God has specifically targeted an individual, and it is a Hebrew that God targets. Who is this kid? What did he do? Why is God putting him to death? Well, we just don't know. It just says that he's wicked in the sight of the Lord and he's put to death. We don't know how he died. Could have died from a heart attack, an accident. He simply could have just fallen to the ground dead, like the Egyptian firstborns. And Judah's firstborn son is now dead, and we do not have the privilege of knowing what happened. But we know who did it, and it was God, and why it happened, because he was wicked. Judah does not know that. Judah's son is just dead, and he does not know why. And it was too bad, because his secondborn wasn't much better. Now we've got Onan. Now, Onan, his name means barbarian in Hebrew. Kind of Onan the Barbarian. Just joking, it doesn't mean that at all. I'm on fire today. Uh, This guy does not get the memo because uh, his brother is bad news just as much as his older brother. and He's raised a Canaanite. He acts the part because the Canaanites were really known for their sexual degeneracy. According to ancient Near Eastern culture, which later became known as Leveret Marriage in Deuteronomy, a married man died without a son, and he was, he was married, his wife would have to marry his brother and raise up an offspring for him. That son would then be considered the son of the dead brother, and he would inherit everything as the firstborn. It's a very strange practice to hear for our culture, and I can't imagine many of the ladies here would be jumping into the opportunity to marry their brother-in-law. But this is something that was meant to happen, to raise up an offspring so that 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 brother who died, his name wouldn't be cut off, that his lineage wouldn't just end, that someone would be able to pass on his family line. But Onan, he wasn't happy with that. He didn't want to do it. Instead, of uh, simply refusing to marry her, which he was allowed to do, he was allowed to say, no, I don't want to marry Tamar. I don't want that responsibility. He could have done that. Instead, he decides, actually, you know what? I will marry her. And he just gets sexual favors from her without blessing her with a child. Why is he doing that? Well, there is a a sexual element that motivates him, but there's also another element. What happens if no son is born? What happens if he doesn't give a, a child? Then Onan inherits everything. It all comes to him. Right? And if he raises a son, the leadership of the clan would go to the son. Who wants to be the leader of the clan now? Onan, he doesn't want to give it up to some son that wouldn't even be his son, to his wife that's not really his wife. He doesn't want any of that. Instead, he treats his brother's uh, wife, Tamar, like a whore. And God was understandably furious at Onan. And he just puts him to death as well. The second person killed like this in the Bible. And what I find fascinating is that anytime that God puts anyone to death like this in the Bible, it's usually people that are very closely associated with the people of God people that are very closely associated with Israel or the church. You can think of Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts. You can think of those in the Corinthian church who were taking communion in an unrighteous way and God put them to death as well. You can think of Achan in the book of Joshua when he stole the wealth from Jericho and he and his family were put to death. God seems to have a, a, a different standard for those that are considered in his household. Why? Because God is zealous for the purity of his people and he will not tolerate those who would introduce degenerate and ungodly behavior into his church. He will intervene, if necessary, to cut off the ungodly from among his people. It's a good reminder not to mess around with God's church. When pagan Canaanites are acting like pagan Canaanites, maybe God will go and do something and intervene and and put those people to death. But it's a different thing when it is people that are, supposed, that are supposed to be part of his household, and here we have Er and Onan, who could be the next in the lineage for the Messiah. But no, they are cut off. We see Judah. He doesn't know why both of his worthless sons died, and so superstition starts to set in. Two sons have died. What's the common denominator? Tamar. And he starts to think to himself, oh man, if I marry Sheila to Tamar, he may die too, because Tamar must be cursed. There's something wrong with this girl. Every time she's married to someone, my son dies. And so luckily for Judah, Sheila was only a young teenager at the time that Onan dies. So he doesn't immediately have to give Tamar over to get married. And so he starts to try to concoct a plan, or he starts to find some sort of way that he could avoid marrying Tamar to his son Sheila, his youngest son he doesn't want him to die i want him to die i should say this is when tragedy strikes again judah has had to endure the death of two of his sons and now his wife will die and this sets off a series of events that will leave you i imagine shaking your head so let's get into it my second point the immoral brother verse 12. in the course of time the wife of judah she daughter died when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friends, Hira the Adullamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Anahim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and took off her veil. She put on the garments of a widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And when he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Anayim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. Well, this text starts off with Judah kind of doing a massive disservice to Tamar. He really has no intention of marrying her to his younger son, Sheila. And instead of telling her this, he takes a note out of his father Jacob's playbook and decides to just not do anything and just hope the problem goes away. But we found out that when Jacob doesn't do anything, other people take things into their own hands. And so the problem with this strategy is that someone else is going to do something. When you don't do something, someone else is going to do something. She saw he has grown up. There was no announcement of the wedding. And so she is going to act. And widows, you must remember, have very few opportunities in this ancient culture. A previous marriage very quickly shuts down the opportunity for another marriage. Not many marriageable men were interested in widows. So it was very hard to get remarried. It was also a dangerous place to be without children, as there was no one to take care of you in your old age. And so Tamar saw her opportunity to force Judah's hand. Judah's wife has died, probably fairly young. She's died fairly young. And now Judah is a widow, just like Tamar, and he's probably a little lonely. So, in the course of time, Judah has to go shear his sheep. And so, who does he go off with but with Hira? And you know, when those two guys head off, you're bound to fall into trouble. So they stop at Anaim, this small town on the road to Timnah, and Judah seems to have one thing on his mind. And Tamar knew Judah enough to know where to go and who to be. And she puts on a veil. Normally, when we think of prostitutes, we don't think of veils. We usually think of a lack of clothing when we think of prostitutes. But in this time, you would dress yourself up with a veil to hide your identity. And she disguised herself as one of the many cult prostitutes. That word cult at the front indicates that she was a sacred prostitute. That one, she wasn't a sacred prostitute, but she was masquerading as one. She was masquerading as a woman who worked for perhaps the goddess Astarte or Adonis, which were some Phoenician gods at the time. And she was in the city gates. And so they covered their, uh, she covered her face with a veil and tripped Judah. And we can see really... Judah's character here, right? He's supposed to be a descendant of Abraham, a son of Abraham, a follower of God. And here he is, abandoning his father's household. But more than that, he is willing to pay for a prostitute. Now, that's pretty shameful. We can all agree on that. But also to engage in religious sexual worship of false gods really is just beyond the pale. Judah has fallen very far. And so the Bible tells us that he sees her in the gates. That word see, he sees her. Sin begins in the eyes. He looked at that young woman when really he had no business doing so. She was young enough to be his daughter. Sin begins in the eyes and it's a desire for things that we ought not to look at. Like Job, we ought to make a covenant with our eyes to ensure that we do not look because our eyes quickly infect our hearts. Judah's in trouble now. He asks, how much How much is it to the cult prostitute? She says, a goat. Now, not many of us will be rearing for a goat, but this was, this was a high price for this time. This is a decent, decent, uh, decent payment. But she doesn't actually want that goat. She wants his cord, she wants his staff, and she wants his signet ring. Because these items would identify Judah and protect her should she fall pregnant and someone find out because she could find herself getting in a lot of trouble if people find out that she was pregnant um, out of wedlock. And so we look at this story and we just see that it's full of sin. Judah comes into Tamar, she falls pregnant, and we just look at this and we're just like, man, why is this story in the Bible? Why are we reading this? We see Tamar, she's a Canaanite woman. She behaves the way you would expect a Canaanite woman to behave. This is just who they were. This was their culture. But Judah... So far, we've seen nothing redeeming about him. We've seen nothing good about him. He sold his brother into slavery. He married a Canaanite woman. He failed to discipline his sons. He destroyed the life of his daughter-in-law. And now he's using the services of a temple prostitute who was young enough to be his daughter. And we're thinking, Judah, how far do you have to come? How low do you have to get? And now this prostitute that you just slept with, she's now pregnant. And he didn't realize that at the time, but it was his own daughter-in-law. And if you think your family is dysfunctional, you might feel a little bit better reading Genesis 38. So he sends Hira the Edumalite back. He sends him with a goat. He wants to get his expensive jewelry. He wants to get his staff back. But Tamar is long gone. She has got what she wanted and she's not going to stick around. The men of the city even say there was, there's no cult prostitute here. Maybe Judah should have checked out the city and was like, is there a shrine here for Adonis? Is there a shrine here for Astarte? But there wasn't. This would have been humiliating for Judah if everyone found out. But not for the reason you think. It would be humiliating if you found out that any man used the services of a prostitute. But that's not what Judah's concerned about. He's concerned about the fact that he gave that prostitute his expensive signet ring cord and staff. He would look like a fool giving such important items to a prostitute. He would be the laughingstock of all of Canaan. It would be hilarious to everyone to see this man uh, offloaded with some of his most precious, most expensive, most important identifying uh, items, and he's given them to a prostitute. And this, we think, Judah's probably thinking to himself, oh man, this couldn't get any worse. But Judah, trust me, it is going to get a lot worse. You have not begun to feel the humiliation that you're about to feel. And that's my third point, the humiliated brother. Let's get into it. Verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zerah. Well, Judah's world just unraveled. He finds out that Tamar is pregnant, and his initial thought is that she'd slept around, that she'd been sexually immoral, which is true. I mean, she's technically betrothed to Sheila, so this amounts to adultery. Quite a serious crime during this time, and he says, bring her out to be burned. Now, immediately, we may be thinking he's saying being burned alive, but probably doesn't mean that it probably means that they're going to get a hot iron and brand a symbol on her cheek or a forehead so that everyone would know that she's an adulterer and so this is what he wants to do to her and we see the irony i mean judah didn't you like three months prior just like sleep with a prostitute do you remember that one at all you know he having done that is now raining down judgment upon his daughter-in-law completely forgetting who he is it's hypocrisy And this this, uh, reaction is actually quite common in us. You know, when we are struggling with a certain sin, often we come down the hardest on that sin in other people. We get most outraged and up in arms about the sins we find ourselves doing. If someone has an unhealthy obsession denouncing like one particular kind of sin, and you've seen it over and over, maybe you should like raise an eyebrow and go, hey man, are you okay with that one? Are you doing all right with that one? Because you shouldn't be shocked to find that they may be tangled up in that sin too. And so Tamar's little scheme works. She comes confidently to Judah. She goes, Oh, you want to burn my cheek? You want to burn my forehead? You want to brand me as an adulterer? That's fine. This is the man whom I fell pregnant to. And she presents to Judah his stuff. She says, Verse 25, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And then she says something very interesting. Please identify whose these are. That phrase, please identify whose these are, is the exact same Hebrew phrase we saw last week when the bloodied coat of Joseph was placed before Jacob. And they said to him, they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father. And they say, this we have found, please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. Same phrase in Hebrew. This is the moment of Judah's humiliation. When his lifestyle choices and decisions come back to bite him and god is punishing judah in clear black and white for selling his brother into slavery ironic and god i think sometimes is a fan of irony once judah had presented this bloody coat to jacob and he said please identify this bloody coat to his father and now his daughter-in-law is presenting his own staff signet and cord to him as the father of a new child. I mean, the parallels between Judah and Joseph are unmistakable. Moses is clearly holding these two men up for us to look at and to contrast. Both of these men will have a run-in with a promiscuous woman. We'll see Joseph. He's going to have that experience next week. These women are used to bring Judah and Joseph to their lowest of places. Joseph will end up in jail. Judah will end up the laughingstock of all of Canaan. And at this stage in the story, I, it's, it's hard to feel bad for Judah. Honestly, as I'm reading this, I'm not thinking, oh, poor Judah, he's got it hard. I'm not thinking that at all. I'm thinking, you deserve this, man. <laughs> you screwed up. But he, Judah, to his credit, does something surprising here. He humbles himself. With great shame, he admits, she is more righteous than I. Now, what Judah is not saying here is that Tamar is righteous. She was cunning. She was scheming. She was a bit of a snake of a girl, really. He was more than happy to pretend to be a prostitute in order to get away. What we're not talking about is the righteousness of Tamar. We are talking about Judah when he says that. He has made a royal mess of things. And compared to Tamar, she has come out looking better than him. She has come out of this situation, the more righteous one. And that is a heavy blow to Judah's pride. But he's correct. Judah, you're right, mate. She does come out looking better. Maybe only slightly, but she does. The passage says that he did not know her again. They had no more relations after this. Judah had repented. And you can see it through his actions. He bore fruit in keeping with repentance. He did not know her again. He no longer practiced sexual immorality. And this experience has left a profound mark on him. When a time came, Tamar gives birth to twins, Perez and Zerah. Now, the birth is absolutely messy. This is something that I would not want to be present for. And Tamar was ultimately lucky to make it out of this experience alive. Zera's arm came out first for a second. And the midwife ties a scarlet thread around his wrist so that everyone knows this is the firstborn. But then the arm retreats back in and another child comes out without a scarlet thread. Perez suddenly bursts forth and the midwife is stunned by how big the breach was. That uh, that is a Hebrew phrase for something I imagine I would not want to be present for. They even name him Perez, which means breach. Why are they telling us about this? Well, you've got to remember when we are reading Genesis, we're looking for someone. With every subsequent generation, we are looking for someone. Who are we looking for? The serpent crusher, right? The seed of the woman, the one who will come and crush the head of the serpent. So as we are walking through this list, we are hoping and looking that we will find a certain child, a certain person that will change the world, who will defeat the serpent and defeat the way that this world had turned up. And what we're going to find out later is that God does not choose for that lineage to go through Joseph. You'd be reading Genesis and you'd be like, yep, Joseph has got this in the bag. Why wouldn't God pick Joseph? He is clearly the more righteous. He clearly is. He's got very few flaws. He gets humbled very quickly and he turns out pretty good. Judah is a mess. But who does God pick? Judah. In fact, he picks Perez, the son of Tamar. You know what's shocking about that? Sheila was still alive. And God picks Perez. In Matthew 1 3, in the genealogy of Jesus, Tamar is mentioned by name. She shows up as one of the mothers of the Messiah. Fascinating, isn't it? It's just a picture of God's grace. We like to think that He would use the highest among us, He would use the most gifted, the most talented, the most moral, the most principled and he picks Judah and Tamar. I mean, the whole story kind of makes you feel a bit icky, doesn't it? God's like, no, I'm gonna pick Perez, the son of abject immorality. Amazing. If you ever feel like God couldn't accept you, or that you need to get your act together before coming to him, just know that it could be worse. (laughs) And yet God can still use you. And so God brings Judah low before him. And we see this concept of humiliation. We saw it last week in Joseph. We see it this week in Judah. Often the best thing for a wayward child is for their lives to fall apart before they recognize the goodness of God. One of the hardest things as a parent, and I'm sure for Jacob and Leah, was to see Judah walk astray and go astray from the path of their grandfather, Abraham. Sometimes the best thing for children like that, is for their lives to fall apart, just like Judas did, for him to be brought low. But before we start looking at other people, we need to recognize that in the gospel, we too are brought low before God. We're stripped of our pretension, we're stripped of our pride, our feelings of superiority, our sin ultimately is exposed before God before we boast in our good deeds and our intelligence and our kindness or our sense of justice or our politics or whatever you boast in, you think, I'm a good person, God's going to accept me. Before you go to that with your head held high, remember that you've got to be broken down because Christ broke through that veneer and He brought us low if we believe in Him. He saw our need. He saw just how unrighteous we are and He came and He died. And when we recognized that, we saw how much we needed Christ. And in the same way, we need to be brought just as low as Judah. In fact, if you have not been brought as low as Judah, then I would probably wager that you may not be a Christian. When we read Judah, we can quickly judge him as a fool. And you would be right to judge him as a fool. He raised up worthless sons. He did what he knew was wrong. He was humiliated in front of all the people of Canaan. But are we really different? Under a similar set of circumstances, who's to say we would not have made the same decisions as Judah? The first step forward toward knowing God is to humble yourself. If we don't humble ourselves, God will humble us. It's painful, isn't it, to take a hard, long look at yourself? But if we do, we are taking the first step toward healing. When we recognize our sin, then you can start to take the necessary steps towards restoration, reconciliation, and hope. Isaiah 66.2, this is the one to whom I will look. This is God speaking. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Judah got to this place. (laughs) It took him a while to get to this place. By the grace of God, we didn't have to go through the same things he did. But God will exalt those who are humble, contrite, remorseful, repentant, and who tremble at his word. My question is, is that you? I want to encourage you. If Judah can be restored, so can you. Come to God. Whether you are, whether you're a Christian, if you're struggling with sin as a Christian, and you've been lost in pride, and you're just like, I'm done with it. I just don't want this anymore. I don't want to have to be so in control and have everything under under wraps and pretend that I'm not struggling with sin. You can just come humble before God and you can just trust him and admit it and give it to him and repent and say, Lord, please restore me. Christian, you can do that today. There is nothing stopping you. But for those who don't trust in God, who don't know whether they know God or not, the first step towards Christianity is humility to lose your life for the sake of Christ. And when you lose your life, Christ will give you the one true life. One of the great joys we're gonna get reading the book of Genesis is seeing how Judah changes. And the best is still yet to come. I wager the same is for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you have brought us low in the gospel that we saw our sin, we saw our misery, we saw all the wrong that we have done before you. And God, you called us out of darkness into your glorious light. You brought us back from the dead. You made us alive with Christ and you seated us in the heavenly places. Now, Father, often our life can be messy, our family dysfunctional. And Father, we do not feel like we are that far away from Judah and his story. But Lord, we know that your grace is abundant and you save even the rebellious. You save even the wayward if they turn back to you in repentance. And we thank you, Lord, that as we see this journey that Judah went through of absolute immorality towards repentance. Lord, we know that anyone can be saved in this world. And we pray, Lord, that you will save, that your spirit will break through the blindness, that it will break through into the darkness and that people will believe and trust and know you. We pray, Lord, for Brankston. We pray, Lord, for Greeter and North Rothbury and Singleton and Cessnock and Curry. Lord, I pray that you would awaken people to the truth of your gospel in this area. Would you once again show your mercy to those who are living in a great land of darkness and would they see the glory of your son, Jesus? We thank you, Lord, that although we were brought low, you exalted us and you placed us in the heavenly places with you. And our hope is that one day when we die, we get to be with you in heaven. And that is our plea, that is our hope, that is our request for you, Lord. Would you do all this? In Jesus' name, Amen.